Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. Hi, this is Lisa, and I have a new guest with me here today. Uh, did you want to introduce yourself? Hi, this is Zaki Hassan. I'm a host of the Movie Film Podcast and the Nostalgia Theater Show, and I'm really excited to be here. Yes, this is so awesome. Thank you so much uh, for reaching out, and I'm so glad we were able to schedule this and really pumped that you picked this movie. Which, uh, which movie did you pick today? I picked Planet of the Apes. The original Planet of the Apes, I should say. Yes, yes. I'm so excited to talk about this. Uh, And I I guess we'll kind of jump right into it a little bit. Uh, When did you see this movie? So I saw it. I was actually thinking back. I was like, when when was the first – when was the year? And I want to say it it was – like 88 or 89 when I saw it and I saw it on, on home video. I was actually living in Saudi Arabia at the time and um, I knew of the movie, I knew of its existence. So I was, you know, uh, probably six or seven. This is, in fall of 87, I saw the, there was a cartoon show. There was a Planet of the Apes cartoon show, um, which, you know, is an odd thing. It's an odd thing to make a cartoon show about. Uh, <laughs> but they showed it on TV in Saudi Arabia Arabia, fall of 87, and I just, I fell in love with it. I was like, this is amazing. This is great. It really blew me away. And I knew of the movie. And so then from there uh, began this like two year uh, quest to, to try to track down the movie because I couldn't find it anywhere. Apparently, it had been banned in Saudi Arabia. Oh, wow. I've, isn't that interesting? I have no idea that... why. <laughs> no idea. That, that uh, is really interesting. Yeah. And I mean, the, the only thing I can think of is maybe. Uh, you know, the the way it depicts human beings being sort of animal-like. Maybe that's sort of uh, uh, blasphemous or sacrilegious or something. You know, I'm, I'm not yeah. sure, genuinely. Or maybe the, you know, it's not very, at certain parts, or at least comments on not being necessarily pro-religion in general. Yeah, that's a good know? point. Very true. Yeah, so, so regardless, somehow, uh, somebody uh, living over there, they knew that, I'd been trying to find this movie and they're like, Hey, I got a copy of it. And you know, it's like, uh, this, this, um, contraband that I got a hold of, you know, (laughs) and uh, they got me, they got me the first one and the third, uh, one. And, and uh, I must've worn out that VHS tape. And it was funny because even that version was edited. There was probably five or six minutes edited out of that movie. And uh, I didn't realize that until I came back to the States and saw uh, the complete version. But, um, you know, I, I, I adore this movie. I, I can't even tell you how many times I've seen it. And I always tell people, I'm like, the way most people are about St- Star Wars or, or Star Trek, that's me with Planet of the Apes. I love Star Wars and Star Trek, but I, I'm i like maybe one step above when it comes to Planet of the Apes. 
Yeah, I mean, well, when this movie came out in 1968, I mean, it was the Star Wars of that generation in general. So, I mean, I think I th- I think that's completely understandable. And people that are a little a little bit before the generation that grew up with Star Wars resonate with it more. So, I think, you know, even if you saw it, you know, obviously later, um I could see how you could make that connection. I mean, it's and and it's a great film. Um, I, I feel like there's a lot of people, I was having like a weird thought today that there's a lot of people now that are growing up with these newer reboots and we'll get into it a little bit more, but I feel like as much as I love those reboots and I really, really do like them, the, the more recent ones, um, you know, you won't get the satisfaction of having that surprise ending at the end of the first original it's it's true and and i think you know i i have to say i think to some extent that satisfaction was taken away even before this reboot series because Mm -hmm. of how the film really penetrated the 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 ether in a way where even people who haven't seen the movie are like oh that's the one with the you know the Statue of Liberty. Like, everybody knows it. That's true. You know, when I saw this movie, I think probably my earliest memories of all these films were sort of as a collective. It's kind of like Star Wars. Yeah. For me, For me growing up, it was my father and my uncle just watching it, you know, in the living room on cable TV. And so that can kind of, I guess, hurt your experience a little bit with those films. You know, you're just seeing <laughs> them in succession and not really. So to me, Planet of the Apes, when I thought about it, it was like, you know, I knew it was older than Star Wars. And when what you're seeing mostly on TV is probably the movies that come after the first one. They sort of lose that magic in a way. They do. Um, yeah. And so I, I kind of, they were sort of in the background for me. But then mm. when I got older, I guess old enough to really appreciate it and actually pay attention to it. Um, I sat down and watched the original and I can't remember how old I was, but I think embarrassingly too old to not have. <laughs> but when I finally saw it all the way through, I was actually surprised at the end. Cause I guess as a kid, I was just sort of tuning it out a little bit. It was sort of just yeah. on TV, but then as an adult, like understanding the themes and then seeing that ending, uh, it had a pretty big impact on me. I, it, it made me sort of like an instant fan and I saw it, you know, with new eyes. And mm. I think part of that too, is just being such a big fan of the twilight zone, which is, something I grew up with as well but the Twilight Zone I mean you know the the episodes are only you know less than an hour and so that was easier I think to digest as a kid so I was right. able to kind of grab those concepts a little bit better and um, but then when I returned back to this and saw it I saw the parallels in the way you know the structure of it and how it is kind of like a Twilight Zone episode and that's for a good reason because Rod Serling helped write the screenplay <laughs> that's right yeah yeah um, so that's our introduction, I guess. Let's go ahead and I'm going to jump into just a quick synopsis, um, of this movie and then we'll kind of break it down from there. Sounds uh, good. great. Okay. So Planet of the Apes, uh, complex sociological themes run through this science fiction classic about three astronauts marooned on a futuristic planet where apes rule and humans are slaves. The stunned trio discovers that these highly intellectual simians can both walk upright and talk. They have established a class system and a political structure. The astronauts suddenly find themselves part of a devalued species trapped and imprisoned by the apes. 
And so that's kind of where we start. Um, normally, I have like a lot of quick facts that I like to run through about a movie, but I feel like this is one of those movies that so many people have talked about <laughs> that I'm almost right. like afraid <laughs> to give more facts about it. So I'll just say a couple quick ones, um, and then I'll, I'll go ahead and let you sort of chime in with whatever you had as well. Sure. Um, so like the first thing that I had written down was that Rod Serling admitted that he spent well over a year and 34 drafts trying to translate the uh, the French original novel to the screen. And I thought that was interesting. I, I noticed from reading about it, they even, you know, brought in, uh, was it uh, Michael Wilson to kind of help yeah. rewrite it. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I just found that kind of interesting. Yeah, well, I, I think I think the 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 breakdown between who did what is very interesting because because essentially the version that we s- saw the final version the structure of the movie is all Serling, but the dialogue is is uh, mostly Michael Wilson, yeah. and and really I th- I think you can kind of see the break in when they ultimately decided the the biggest change from the novel is that. I mean, other than the characters being French, um, it's it's that uh, the the culture, the ape culture depicted in the book, is uh, co- comparable to modern human uh, culture, or you know, modern at the time the book was written. So it was in a 1960s esque ape culture. Right. Yeah, and that was also for budgetary reasons, right? You know, they yeah. had to kind of make it a little bit more primitive because it would be a lot harder to predict or to uh, depict, sorry, something that would be current. That's right. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's, that's one of those things where in hindsight it was the, the spot on decision, you know, because, mm-hmm. because I think so much of the film above and beyond the eight makeups, which are extraordinary, it's really the, 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 the iconography of, of the ape city and the way it looks like this sort of troglodytic kind of, uh, unearthly thing, you know. I mean, I think I think mm-hmm. that's one more thing that really preserves the twist. Because if if Chuck Heston uh, is is running around in like a monkey infested Paris, then that makes the buy that much harder to make at the end. I I completely agree. I hadn't even thought of it from that angle. Yeah, that's that's a hundred percent true. Um, the other thing that I had written down were just some alternative casting for the character Taylor besides yeah. uh, Charlton Heston. I had a uh, Sean Connery, Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, George Pippard, Rod Taylor, Burt Lancaster, James Garner, Rock Hudson, Gregory <laughs> Peck, Cliff Robertson, Stuart Whitman, and even John Wayne. It's kind of surprising. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any of those names that I mentioned that you could like imagine in a uh, Charlton Heston's role? You know, I mean, I think, I think I could I could certainly see, for example, Paul Newman doing a mm-hmm. version of this that would probably be worthwhile, and even even George Pappard, Sean Connery to a lesser extent. Uh, but I I really think this is like it's like movie alchemy because you know Charlton Heston is is not just playing astronaut Taylor; he's playing the icon Charlton Heston. That's true. Yeah. You know, and and it's so it's so important uh, when you when you look at what his what his role was in Hollywood at that time um, to see why why the film is so effective with him above I mean number one it got made because Charlton Heston was you know went to the the, the mattresses to to get it made mm-hmm. and he he was at the time you know the equivalent of like Harrison Ford maybe you know fifteen years ago twenty years ago mm-hmm. um, 
but beyond that, it's you know the and this is something I can't take credit for. This is something Eric Green, who's been a terrific like apes scholar, he you know he said you know the the impact of that ending is not just the Statue of Liberty, but it's Charlton Heston, this sort of the embodiment of the the manly man, the modern American man, cr- crumpled to his knees in front of it. It's it's the two of those together that really makes that ending work. Right. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. I think I think he was perfect for the role and it's it's hard to imagine like you said somebody else filling that role especially with a lot of the other work Charlton Heston did it just sort of you know he's able to rise to meet that that kind of character so I totally yeah. agree. Yeah. Great. Okay, well let's start off talking a little bit about uh the director Franklin James Schaffner. Um Schaffner Schaffner Schaffner. Schaffner. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, so I am going to go ahead and admit to you that I haven't seen a ton of his movies. I, I'm familiar with Patton, mm-hmm. and that's pretty much it. So I was kind of anxious to hear what, what your thoughts on the director himself. Well, uh, the truth of it is that uh, I so I the first movie of his that I saw, like, like I saw Patton. That's mm-hmm. kind of one of those. Yeah. That's like film film student one hundred and one kind right. of things, you know. <laughs> um, and and it's funny because I just recently rewatched it within the last you know eight days. Not not connected to the conversation we were going to have, mm-hmm. and I hadn't seen it in in you know fifteen twenty years. Wow. And it really it struck me. The, the sort of stylistic similarities uh, between uh, Planet of the Apes and Patton. I mean, he he has a very distinctive eye, and I do think it it's a it's a tremendous loss that he didn't have a longer career. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've seen the Boys from Brazil, which which I would recommend. I think it's it's a uh, that's uh, I believe that's the last time Lawrence Olivier was nominated for an Oscar. Um, but the, the movie of his that I watched as a direct result of uh, Planet of the Apes was The Warlord, which is from, uh, 1965. And that was, uh, that also starred Charlton Heston. And so Schaffner got the job at Ch- Chuck Heston's recommendation. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and I, you know, cause, cause, uh, Blake Edwards was attached at one point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, and, I read that. Yeah. And and also J. Lee Thompson, who who went on to do uh, two of the sequels, who he he did the original Cape Fear, and uh, you know the, I can I can see the Blake Edwards version. I'm sure it would have been fine. I'm sure the J. Lee Thompson version would have been fine too. But I really think that that what Schaffner did was he he authored for the screen uh, the the screenplay that that Serling and and Wilson did. So in other words, there mm-hmm. there's a distinctive stamp that he brings, and I always point to this the first. You know, twenty five minutes of this movie, there is no, there are no apes. That's true. Yeah, I think that's something that I forget if I don't see this movie for a long time. So, for instance, <laughs> I, I've seen this movie. And I remember, I think it was last year. It was last year or the year before at Alamo. They had this big event, and Mondo had this like special T-shirt. It may have been one of the, an anniversary of the original movie, and mm-hmm. I really wanted to go, and I didn't make it. And I was thinking about this when I watched this on Sunday, uh, yesterday. I, I I think it's been a pretty long time since I last saw this movie, and wow. I was surprised by that. I was surprised that that there's this long stretch of time before you see the apes and i guess i was thinking watching that how that must have felt to be in the theater back in 1968 yeah and watch it and then suddenly see the apes and how incredible they must have looked because to be honest with you even today 
they're pretty that you know the makeup work is just so impressive and so yes especially in the first movie you know i I always tell people like you got to separate the first one from the sequels like i will defend the sequels but the the makeup they started they got a little uh, chintzy by the end yeah (laughs) i agree you know but i mean that i i always i i i love the everything leading up to the the hunt sequence because it's Mm -hmm. It's setting the tone. It's setting uh, the the goal, and and not just that. What it's really doing unconsciously is it's establishing for us in the audience how completely cut off our heroes are. And I think that's really important because as we get into the ape city, you know, um, you know, there's there's a scene about halfway through where 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 Taylor Charlton Heston is being chased through the city, and you know, it's the famous scene that ends with them being hoisted in the net, and they're like throwing uh, rocks and fruit at him Mm -hmm. and when you watch that scene unconsciously you're like where can he go there is nowhere right they've set up that level of isolation that you need to be fully invested in that world yeah yeah and And, you know i'll tell you sorry i don't mean to interrupt but just as a as a kid because i was like nine or ten that was what really struck me and it stayed with me and i think it's a large uh, to a large extent why the movie has always stayed with me because especially as a kid i think that sense of being alone and having no one to turn to that really hits you in a, in a very specific way no i completely agree and i think it really helps you know you, you mentioned earlier the setting of the movie helps with you not making the connection that at the end, spoiler alert, guys, <laughs> that he's on Earth, right? And and they need to really make you feel like it's somewhere else, even though it's shot in like Arizona. I was reading, which that yeah. kind of that really surprised me. Um, but you know, they have to make you feel like you're somewhere else. How could he really think he's somewhere else, even if it's 700 years in the future? You know, what about it makes it feel like it couldn't be Earth? And so I think they spend a long time sort of setting that up, and you know, it helps, and it, it, it's in a I guess a more realistic way than say, you know, Star Trek, the original series, you know, when they're always in the desert, they're like, Oh, we're on a different planet. And you're like, right. yeah, it looks like you're in LA, but okay. <laughs> you know, or, so or like the episodes where it looks like a New York street and they're like, they evolved just like us. You yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. We could talk about things that uh, I feel are wrong with the uh, Tim Burton reboot, but we'll get into oh. that. <laughs> 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 but anyways, so, so yeah, so I completely agree with you there. Um, and uh, so what really struck me about watching this again yesterday is I really liked the way that it was directed. You know, you mentioned kind of uh, the setting and all that. I completely agree. And I also felt that it, it, at times the shots were very, like, distorted or surreal. And that kind mm-hmm. of helped with his feeling like, you know, he was kind of going crazy or what's going yeah. on and disoriented. Um, something I probably, I don't think I noticed when I was younger at all and really appreciated. I, I, um, for me, the, the hunt sequence specifically and, um, you know, Schaffner, Schaffner uses a, a zoom lens, which is, you know, that's not really common these days. So these days when you see it, it kind of calls attention to itself, mm-hmm. but you, you, you know, we hear the, the apes like hunt horn or whatever it is and then we get this zoom lens into the thicket and i i was that's sh- a shot that i to me the fact that it looks so jarring uh technically now works so perfectly because we should feel jarred right mm-hmm. um but not just that look at the staging you know it, it, i was i was reading about how schaffner he was very specific he's like he wanted the cornfield to be at like 
eight feet or whatever it was. And he was very specific about it. He's like, it wasn't growing fast enough. He's like, we're not shooting it until it's at eight feet. You know, and oh, it wow. grew, like it grew too high. And they, he was like, hey, well, mow it at eight feet or whatever, because he wanted it very specific. And and you see why, right? Because mm-hmm. we get those great shots where you just see the swords like cutting through the 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 stalks, and then you just see the hooves and and. I, I actually show this in, in my film classes. I'm like, look at the entrance of the apes and look at the fact that we we see the ape and then we cut uh, on horseback and then we cut immediately back to Chuck Heston's reaction. And it's this holy crap reaction. And then we cut back to the apes. And I'm always like, what what Chaffner's doing is he's he's telling us how to react by contextualizing us with, with Chuck Heston's reaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely agree. You know, and we see, you know, Spielberg did something similar with like the dinosaurs introduced in Jurassic Park, where the Mm -hmm. first thing we see is Sam Neill, this look on it, you know, that iconic look on his face where his eyes are wide open. And then we see the dinosaurs. We're like, okay, that's how we're supposed to. Okay, cool. You know? Yeah, I always love that frame of reference in in movies. I think it's uh, more powerful because you're connecting with their experience Exactly. Just the visual, because the visual, it's, it's going to we're all going to experience that differently. But if we have a frame of reference, the actor's reaction, that that really helps. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you can you can see a scenario where people would look at the first reveal of the apes and laugh. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, certainly back then. But but even now, like that's what mm-hmm. I find so interesting is even today. I because I've screened the film several times to several different audiences who are coming in completely cold. No one has ever laughed at the intro of the apes. Yeah, that's something we and, take for granted. Kind of like in Star Wars when you know Yoda isn't like a silly yeah. looking puppet. Right. <laughs> it's really exactly. the reactions of the other characters and how the director frames it that helps you, you know, get the the desired effect. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so I, I was thinking next we could talk a little bit um, about Rod Serling. Um, we can dive into Michael Wilson too. I'm not as familiar with his work, but for Rod Serling, I have to say, like as I kind of mentioned earlier, uh, Twilight Zone was one of those things that I just I grew up with. I remember watching just marathons of it in my living room, mm-hmm. and I think the biggest thing that's always stuck with me about those stories is how incredibly timeless they are, and how you know there's always a big twist at the end typically, and it's it's chilling, it's a little frightening. Um, but it always has a really big, I guess, moral impact or message. And I think it's part of the reason why this story is kind of the same way. It has that same effect. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's it's funny because people uh, categorize uh, Rod Serling as, as, you know, being, you know, nihilistic or something. And I don't, I don't think he was that. I think he was cynical, you know. And mm-hmm. I, I, think, I think his cynicism was rooted in – the, the lived experience of, uh, you know, what was going on culturally in the, the 40s and 50s and 60s and, you know, the civil rights movement, et cetera. And, and so I think the fact that the Twilight Zone, you can pop on just about any episode, and I say just about because there's a few clunkers in there, but, sure. you know, almost any episode you can put it on. And, and we, in 2017, can find something to relate to. Yeah, definitely. Um, and and I think as far as Planet of the Apes, I think you know because because the the novel. I don't know. Have you have you read the novel? I have not. I was going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, Pierre. Uh, uh, Pierre Boulle. Boulle. That's right. Yeah. 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 I've never read the novel. So you you've read it? 
I did. Yeah, nice. I actually read I I read the novel before I saw the movie. Oh wow. Uh so I was I was again, I was like 8 or 9. Gotcha. And uh yeah, and and I'm thinking back on that now. I'm like, man, is that like normal for an 8 or 9 year old? <laughs> I remember reading um I, we mentioned this in my Jurassic Park episode. I know I read Jurassic Park uh-huh. around the time it came out and I was 9 or 10 and it was a pretty pretty big book for a 9 year old. Yeah, I I think it's like your desire to see it, right? Because you probably was the book what you could get a hold of when you couldn't see the movie. Yeah, well, it it was it was one of those things where I I had seen the cartoon and I think maybe a couple of years gone by and I was at somebody's house and it was one of those things where like I didn't have anything to do and they were like, here, here's some books, you know, and it's this old beat up copy of of uh it wasn't even called planet of the apes it was called the monkey planet which is the original title right. but it had a little th- it had a little thing like soon to be a major motion picture or whatever and uh and i just i devoured the thing and and i didn't think much about it until i saw the movie which was maybe a, a year or two later and i was thinking how you know when you're a kid a year or two might as well be five or ten years true yeah <laughs> like, so so i had basically forgotten the bulk of the book when i saw the movie but there were a few there's a few bits and pieces that carried through so the characters of cornelius and zira and uh, dr zaius are in the book as is the character nova Mm -hmm. but other than that i mean the the movie kind of just went its own way and i think i think to its to its benefit because because the book is the book is good, uh, but I think I think it's it's lesser than the film because I think it's uh, it's more literary. So it's doing stuff mm-hmm. like number one, the the twist isn't in the book. It's they're on another planet. Oh wow! Yeah, so, so that's a huge of, twist. Yeah, yeah, and it's kind of I guess maybe the book is more exploring uh, you know philosophies and and thinking about man and and who and what they are and what makes us who we are but not necessarily giving you like a big punch like you said like a twist yeah well so i'm I'm thinking like what it is i'll tell you it's it's not it's not the statue of liberty twist but what the twist it's like three twists it's like nested twists because what it is so the book starts with these two astronauts who are in space and they find like a message in a bottle and they're like, oh, what, what's that? And they grab, they like go into space, they get it, and they, it's like a manuscript. And they start reading it. And the manuscript is like, you know, I'm writing this to tell you what's happened to me. My name, and the character's, uh, he's a, he's a uh, journalist. His name is Meru, Ulysses, Ulysses Meru. And he's like, this is what happened to me. And I went on this trip and blah, blah, blah. And the whole, they, you know, like a version of what we see in the movie. Mm-hmm. And then he, he leaves the planet of apes and he goes home to Earth. And basically, it's been like a thousand years back and forth. So he comes home, and there's like a parade waiting for them. And then him and Nova, who is his wife, uh, they land, and then they're like, they, they realize that there's like apes waiting for them at home. So it's kind of it's the ending of the of the Tim Burton movie. Oh, gotcha. Okay. But yeah. but the Tim Burton movie added like a time travel thing. This is just like Earth has evolved into a planet of apes while he was gone. Gotcha. And that seems like a weird coincidence instead of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. so then twist on top of that. So, the, so, you know, the manuscript ends and it's like, oh, there were gorillas waiting for us. And that's the end. So the astronaut reading is like, ah, oh, that's a bunch of crap or whatever. And we find out that it's two chimpanzees who are reading this story. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> wow. That is nested. <laughs> Seems like that would be hard to portray on screen. <laughs> Very much so. Right. So, so, 
what I've read is that the ending of the film, like they decided early on, because it was it was uh, Serling's idea to make it Earth the whole time. That seems like a very like Serling. Very Serling, yeah. Very much so, right? And what they were trying to figure out was the best way to to convey that. And they had a couple different things. And at the time, it was Blake Edwards was attached as a director. And and what I've read is that him and uh, Arthur Jacobs, as the producer, were like p- trying to figure it out. And they were at some deli. And uh, as they're checking out, they see like a picture on a calendar or something of the Statue of Liberty. And both of them look at each other and they're like, Rosebud. Like, that's yeah. it. That's the ending. And, uh, and you know, it's movie history. The ironic thing is that Pierre Boulle did not like the ending. Oh, he, really? he did not like them. He did not like them making it Earth. And he, he sent him a, a note where he was like, uh, I view this ending as a temptation from the devil. <laughs> wow <laughs> so i think funny. i think he came around though once once the royalty checks started coming in you know right well and i think too you know i can understand him being the author and not being happy with them changing it or making it less complex is which is what it sounds like they kind of did they're like how do we break this down so we can watch it on screen and that, exactly. that's probably hard for a novelist to think about if they're not also a screenwriter um, and Rod Serling, obviously, that's what he does is puts things on screen. So yeah. you have to look at it in a different way. How do you keep something? And one big way is to have something extremely iconic that, like you said, conveys the entire message quickly versus going, oh, now I get it. This is New York, you know, and explaining it to you. That wouldn't have the right. same impact. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That is really interesting. Well, now I want to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> it's out there and, and i would you know it's remained in print because of this massive franchise so it might have been a temptation from the devil but uh <laughs> you know uh, the devil made him rich you know <laughs> exactly yeah yeah well let's talk a little bit about the cast of course we obviously have to start with charlton heston as george taylor we already talked about him kind of being the best fit for this uh, for this role. Um, when I think of him, I think of obviously uh, the Ten Commandments, and I think of um, oh, was it a uh, Soylent Green? <laughs> oh yeah, sure. <laughs> you know what's funny is his his delivery is so specific, right? I mean, it's so That's Heston, right. like you said, and it's funny because I saw Soylent Green earlier this year in the theater. And oh, wow. yeah, yeah, they, they were showing it again at, at, at Alamo. And uh, one of my closest friends, she's been on the podcast a few times. Her name's Kara. She saw it with me. And I don't think she'd seen it before. I think she knew of it. She might have seen it. I don't know. But I, <laughs> I feel like she was shocked. <laughs> and what she kind of <laughs> walked away with when we left was she I, I could tell like I looked at her face when at the very end when he's like, so green is people it's you know it's people <laughs> and i was looking at her and she was just kind of like raising an eyebrow and she was like we walked out of there and she was like you know the, that's so different to see that like style of acting like now like i could tell Very it wasn't so. resonating with her and i thought it was funny because i think i forgot that about it because <laughs> you know because it's like i'm so invested in in that i, I love all sci-fi, but there's just like something about earlier sci-fi, especially like in that era, like 60s, 70s, 80s. Even, oh yeah, totally. Um, that is just so, to me, so impressive the way that it carries to the modern age that I kind of forget about stuff like that scene and how like yeah. how that plays 
I guess more comedic now than it did when he originally did that. <laughs> yeah, if you're, if you're coming in cold, it's yeah. it, I totally agree because because I think I think Heston was sort of like it, it feels like he was like on the, the the last wave of that older style of acting. Mm-hmm. You know, because because of what we started to see in the late seventies, or sorry, late sixties, was more of this shift towards uh, naturalism, and that's when we started to see you know. Uh, the Dustin Hoffmans and the Al Pacinos and, and right. uh, uh, even, uh, you know, Newman and, and, and Redford, right. It's uh, mm-hmm. a much more naturalism. And, and I think Heston's whole persona is this very arch and very stoic. And, and I don't, I don't even say that in, in a, in a, in an attempt to diminish him. I think, I think what he, what he, and it's funny cause I, I vehemently disagree with the, the political turn that he took late in life, but, I, I think a lot of people who disagree with his politics try to diminish his work as an actor. And I'm like, I, I think that's a disservice to to a, a really remarkable uh, filmography. Right. It's kind of like I was trying to explain to someone younger than me. We're talking about, say, someone like Vincent Price. And it's sure. kind of the same thing where you go back and you watch his movies and his, you know, his acting style. It seems very theatrical now. It It's not, yes. you know, it's not something that that actors in in horror and other genres would do anymore. And so I think there's like a, a disconnect there if you're um, maybe not seriously invested in, in cinema history, you might miss, you know, the, the value of that. And so like that's that's always interesting just to see people's reactions to stuff like that. Um, yeah. You know, because you kind of, I feel like in a way you sort of lose something uh, when you get so far away from something like that because I think there's value to, to his performance and how he's portraying it. Yeah, it, you know, it's it's sort of like it's like looking at William Shatner in the original yeah. Star Trek, <laughs> exactly. right? And and it's I mean, it's easy to do sort of the cartoon version of that, but I'm always like, yeah, but you got to look at the context that it emerged in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you got to look at the what was Adam West doing when he was playing Batman? Was he, you know, cuz people are like, "Oh, he was a bad actor." Well, no, he wasn't. He was doing something. You're just not seeing it. Right. You know. No, he's a great actor. It's amazing that after all these years, when you go back and watch you know Adam West portrayal. It's genuinely funny. I mean, the guy was just yeah. hilarious, and it's, it's. I mean, he was in on the joke. That's the right? beauty of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So so yeah. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit too about uh, Roddy McDowell as Cornelius. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like for me, he's he's probably my favorite character in this movie. I don't oh, know. He's I great. just really yeah. I really like the way he plays Cornelius because he could come across. I mean, he's definitely a little milder than say Zira and maybe not, I mean, he's cautious, you know, he's not, he's curious and he wants to break the, you know, the boundaries that they're kind of confined to in their caste system, but he plays it a little bit more subdued. Sometimes he's jealous. I just feel like that role could be really cartoonish. Yeah. And he plays it very subtly. I mean, he, I guess you could, you could see, oh yeah, totally. <laughs> I, I, the the contrast there, I think, is what makes it work. And I was, mm-hmm. I was as you were talking, I was like, you could see like the C three PO version of Cornelius. Yes, yeah, that's a really good comparison. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I think Roddy McDowell is very. First of all, he's a great choice, and you know, history shows how really it, the Ape series, uh, you know, sprinkled fairy dust on his career for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think I think even more than than Chuck Heston, you know, Roddy McDowell is sort of identified with, with the, the series. Sure. Um, but, but Cornelius, I think one of my favorite lines of his in the film is when he, you know, th- they've got 
Taylor in their office and Zira is trying to get him like, oh, you know, he could be talking about this and that. And, and Cornelius is just like, listen, I'm up for a raise. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and I'm like that. He's just like you're. You're. He's like middle management. You know, he's mm-hmm. just he's just trying to get through the day without accidentally uh, going to jail for heresy. You know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. He's like he's he's cautiously optimistic, but he, yeah, but he's still cautious without being like a wimp. You know, without being yeah. somebody you can't root for. Yep, yep. Exactly. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I really think like. I don't, well, him and Zira, I think, you know, it's probably no accident. To me, their prosthetics stand out. Oh, yeah. You know, compared to the other apes, you can tell, at least to me, it seemed like the most time was spent on their facial expressions because... And, and Morris Evans, I would say, also. Yeah, as Dr. that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you, can really t- you can really see how they feel, um, you know, and we've all heard that the, you know, the, uh, I guess, qu- quick fact that uh, that they were told to move their faces around a lot to kind of make them appear more lifelike. And, and I feel like that's, you know, it really works even to this day. Yeah. And, and you see it in these very subtle, you know, like if you look at, you know, during the trial scene, like, you know, Roddy McDowell's brow is just kind of twitching or whatever. And it's Mm -hmm. just this little stuff that makes you look past the fact that these are just like little pieces of foam rubber, you know, and, and you just buy that. No, no, these are, these are, uh, intelligent apes of course they are yeah yeah you know yeah um did you have any more uh notes about roddy mcdowell you know i i think i think that um his his arc is a very interesting one because mm-hmm. because zira is like the crusader and sure. and so her her journey in this film is one where she's already there you know she mm-hmm. where the, where she ends at the start at the end of the movie is where she's already started intellectually uh cornelius has to go on that journey and so i think for me that's what makes it more fulfilling when he um you know when he shakes hands with taylor at the end because he's he's gone on this intellectual trip where he's gone from sort of being like he's crazy i don't know what he is i'm not going to bother trying to explain him to then you know having to uh, not just explain him, but defend him. You know, that's that's very powerful. And I think, I mean, this is beyond the scope of this film, but he makes such a strong impression here that two movies down, uh, his his character's death becomes extremely emotionally, uh, uh, you know, uh, traumatic. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, and that I says think, something about him. Yeah, I feel that maybe a lot of his fear comes from you know, sort of like being right, because I think uh, Zero mentions, oh, you had this theory, like she says that at one point, and he's like, yeah. a long time ago, you know, she's, like you said, she's the crusader, but it's like, he had that desire uh, to discover more, and he still does, but it seemed like he was at a point in his career where he was ready to just sort of accept his place and kind of put this behind him, and then George Taylor's dropped in his lap and it, yeah. know, there's something scary about being right, you know, about succeeding. Very true. And yeah. so, he, you know, that is his arc, um, that fear of facing the unknown and, and going all the way, regardless of what that means, even if it means heresy or, you know, discovering the truth. It's like his big arc is that he, uh, that he wants to do that. And he realizes that in the end. Um, Very well said, yeah. Yeah, and and I think uh, that kind of makes me want to transition a little bit into Kim Hunter as Zira. Um, You know, you may remember her most from A Streetcar Named Desire. That's what I think of when I think of her. Of course, yeah. Yeah. 
And I just, I really love the way she plays that character because she's so, um, you know, she's so confident and she's so uh, driven, but it's not an aggressive driven, you know, it's, it's still, she's very, she's still like very nurturing and very compassionate. And I feel that she balances those emotions really well as that character makes her very likable. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's just her eyes. There's such kindness in her eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, the 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 scene like when when um, Taylor grabs her notebook and then you know he writes her name and she realizes he writes his name. She realizes he's intelligent, right? And at that moment they connect and the the perspective shifts where suddenly now we're looking up at Taylor and he's standing very triumphant and he's looking sort of down at her. But but the look on her face is, I mean, it's just the acting is all in her eyes. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the fact that, that we end with him being like a doctor, I want to kiss you goodbye. There's my Chuck Heston impression, by the way. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a moment that that's very sweet. I think, you know, yeah, yeah. it's funny, but it's sweet. Yeah, I love how she's like, but you're so ugly. <laughs> I like that. And and I like, too, the part where, or, or there's different times in the movie where I feel that the, the way Charlton Heston plays the character, I don't think would translate to today. Like, did you no, have no. that thought? Like, you know, he's so straightforward and he's so, like, overly confident, I feel like sometimes. You know, he's like, yeah. I'm right. Now you all realize I'm a genius. I'm a human. Like, I think that made sense in the 60s, but I think audiences now would consider that maybe a little too arrogant. But yeah. I also think it's interesting the way Zira, no matter what he does, she kind of takes a step back and sort of, she's like, let's see where this goes. Let's give him some room. He's intelligent. He's going to figure this out. He's going to, mm. you know, he's going to calm back down. And I think that's really interesting because that goes against, you know, I, not to make a parallel here, but, but it, it does go against human nature, you know, because yeah. when an animal goes crazy, you know, for for example, we're never like, oh, well, let's see where this goes. You know, <laughs> that's not something that we're taught to even think of. I mean, like you mentioned Jurassic Park earlier, and it's like the second the animals start acting up, the dinosaurs, we're like, okay, shut this down. Let's get rid of them. Like, like, let's see. Let's yeah. see what the raptors are, are planning to do. Yeah, it's like there's no consideration at all given. And that's not something that we typically do. But in this in this story, uh, you know, Zira does that. That's her first instinct to see where this that's, goes. That's, you know, that's a fascinating insight. I have to admit, I've seen this movie dozens and dozens of times, and that's something that I never picked up, picked up on, but that's really fascinating. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess because she is, you know, the, the main female character, and so I'm kind of trying to relate to her. Oh, and I, sure. And I can't yeah. really relate to that part. Like, I feel that the second he started, you know, picking up a gun and stuff like that, I would be like, Oh, okay. I see where I went wrong here. <laughs> you know, right. this is a bad well, idea. <laughs> it's, it's funny too, because you talk about how time lends context and, you know, Charles and Heston certainly later in his career was known for being the Mr. NRA. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, there's that, the, when, the, when, um, Taylor and, and Nova are first, they first escape, um, and he's like, do you have any guns? And Cornelius like, yeah, we got some, but you don't need them. He's like, I want one anyway. Click. And I'm like, wow, that is an entirely different context watching it, you know, in the 90s or 2000s than right. it would have been in the 60s, you know? Because we didn't see where where that that goes, you know, that philosophy kind of yeah. takes us to now. But it, it, it definitely gives you an idea of how 
that generation feels too. Um, and, and generations after it, they grew up with it. Uh, but yeah, I, I just noticed that. And, and yeah, like you said, with the guns, it seems like in the newer movies, that's definitely focused on a lot more, like yeah. almost like picking up a gun is like taking it to the next level in the same way that like when you go from, you know, combat on the ground to the air to, you know, nuclear war, it, it there's an yeah. escalation. You, you've but, crossed a Rubicon. Yeah. Right. But in this movie, there's no line. It's like the gun is the same as like a stick. And that's interesting because I think that's hard as a modern audience for us to relate to. Like you said, yeah. it means something now. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. That's that's really interesting. It's you know the, the I what what you're saying about how Taylor just kind of dives right in and becomes you know confident hero guy. I I think the 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 nice thing narratively is we get to see how he's gonna just fall flat on his face again. So mm-hmm. in other words, that's true. That like you know it it all of that means nothing because. Because it was a bunch of humans acting like that right. that got us to where we are, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's so. real irony. You're right. It, it, you have to have an element of that for that payoff at the end. Because if I he, think so. Yeah, yeah. Because if he's just a cautious explorer the entire time, then at the end it wouldn't be as painful. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, Doctor Zayas says that a number of times about like you know towards the end he's like you may not like what you find. Yeah, and he's so well, and, confident that he will love what he finds. <laughs> and and not just that. I mean, when you think about it, the the what really like, and this is such a surling conceit. I have to believe it, it originated with him. Is Taylor starts the movie basically espousing the same thing about humans that the apes say, right? right. Which is man is this man is that i left the earth because i was i mean you know what i mean he is he was so fed up with people that he left he's like there's got to be something better so the central irony that he finds himself back he doesn't even know he's on earth but he finds himself back on earth and he's he has to then be the guy who's like no no humans are actually you know they were better than you and then of course that you know that irony is then double ironied by no actually they weren't yeah, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's that's so true. I think that's something, too, that I did not pick up on as much when I was younger. Mm-hmm. But then, like, watching it again as an adult, that first part really stuck with me a little bit more. I mean, there's just so much going on in this movie. I read, an, uh, I was reading a review today. I'm trying to remember what the, uh, I'll, th- I'll have to find a link and post it. But it was sort of critiquing every part of the movie. And mm-hmm. one thing that they didn't like about the movie is how they're exploring so many different concepts all at once, which I actually like about it. So I have to disagree with that, but it is Mm. interesting how many layers it's touching on throughout the movie, you know, politics, um, classism, um, you know, all these different things, religion. Yeah. It's like, it's incredible that they're able to put that all into two hours. I mean, basically telling the entire story of humanity through the apes, you know, in just a couple hours in a way that I think, I mean, I love the newer ones. Um, this is going to sound like I don't, but I really do. I really, really like them. But um, I think that this first movie put that all together in such a perfect way. I think it's really hard to duplicate that. You know, without I, no, exactly I, I agree. copying it. Yeah. I agree completely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, Morris Evans, Dr. Zayas. You know, he is great. I, I, I've, you know, the, 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 
the best villain is the hero of his own movie. Mm-hmm. And and that's Dr. Zayas. I mean, he's doing what he thinks is right to preserve his society. He is the hero in, you know, the Planet of the Apes story where this random guy has shown up to mess up society. Right. His biggest fear uh, is here. And he and he says in the movie, you know, that he was waiting for this day to happen. Yeah. Um, he's been warned about it. He has an inside view that other people do not have or other apes, sorry, don't have. Yeah. So he, <laughs> he's got that, that knowledge. And it's kind of like that idea that, you know, the truth is what's most important, but then at the end, you're not sure. And, and at the end, you're not sure if you're with him or against him, because I mean, he's right, you know, humans were the downfall of the earth. And so, yeah, he's lying to his people. Sure. He's covering up the truth, but I mean, the cost of, of what could repeat itself is so scary that, you know, you completely understand why he would do that. Yeah, the you know, the character Lucius has a great line. He's like, why must knowledge stand still? What about the future? And he says, I may just have saved it for you. And you can I mean, it's, it's, you, you have, you look at that and you're like, I, I'm on Lucius's side, but I see what Zaius is saying too. Right. Because there's, there's a, that's yet another layer to this movie is like older generation, younger generation sort of right. flashing, you know, and that's, I think that's, again, that's something I probably did not pick up on when I was younger, that all these different layers to it. But, but yeah, I mean, I think just like any good, you know, going back to talking about the Twilight Zone, um, any good uh, story like this, a science fiction story that has a big twist, I mean, is, is that it, does it leave you with questions, you know, does it leave you with wondering which side you're on? Does it leave you with something to think about? And I think this movie does that really well. Um, and it's not in a 100% straightforward way. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I firmly believe it would be considered a classic still, even if we didn't have a whole franchise machine that sprang up in its in its wake. I think I think Planet of the Apes, by, by itself, you have a beginning, middle, end, and that's, you know, that's something that uh, has stood the test of time, you know, for decades at this point. Yeah, well... You know, going from there, were there any other scenes specifically that you kind of wanted to touch on just to talk about or think about a little bit? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, two scenes. I, I mentioned the 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 escape through the city where, where Taylor, uh, he thinks he's going to be gelded. And so he, he bolts and, and we get this really great sequence. Uh, it's shot and edited really well. But more than that, it gives us a tour of Ape mm-hmm. City. So, you know, we see the human beings who are uh, stuffed. We see uh, the, you know, the stuffed and mounted astronaut who got killed in the hunt. And it really gives us a great sense of geography. And and that adds to what I said earlier about just that sense of despair. Um, But then immediately after that, we have the trial sequence, which is, you know, Michael Wilson, who who wrote uh, Bridge on the River Kwai, which is, you know, it's uh, another Pierre Boulle novel, actually. But he had gotten blacklisted. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so the trial scene was Michael Wilson lampooning or or uh, having a cathartic experience with what he went through, which was just nothing he can say is getting through, you know? Objection, mm-hmm. sustained, you know? Uh, and I think I, what's extraordinary is that what it's evoking is meant to be so specific, and yet it, it you don't need to know that history for that scene to be effective. Right, yeah. Um, the other thing is, is during the trial scene, you know, we, we see what happened to the other astronaut, Landon, who 
who was uh, lobotomized. And I remember being a little kid and that like creeped me out. Yeah, that it's scene. Like terrifying. <laughs> it really is, and and I've I've watched these movies with with my boys now a few times, and and maybe maybe two or three years ago I was watching with my oldest, who he had seen it, and we get to that part, and he's just like, "Can can you skip past this?" Oh yeah, and it's it, so disturbing. It really is, you know, and and I think more than anything, the 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 part that's disturbing is it's a fate worse than death. Mm-hmm. And because, Charlton Heston's reaction to it oh, too, because so I mean, great. when you're a small child you probably you know you understand what what's going on but i think it's his reaction that really drives it home you know that really sells it yeah yeah because if you're if you're seven you don't know what a frontal lobotomy is right (laughs) hopefully (laughs) hopefully yeah but when when you know what the you know the actor robert gunner he his his mouth is just kind of opening and closing and i've noticed that on blu-ray and you know you really see it and you're like man that's it's just it just it unnerves me. It unnerved me as an eight year old. It unnerves me as a thirty eight year old. You know. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Well, was there a, any other scenes that you could think about that that kind of stuck with you? I mean, my gosh, I could, I could talk yeah. your ear off about the whole movie, really. <laughs> but I I mean I mean obviously uh, we can we can just talk about the the ending, you know, yeah, and, and yeah. how That's how effective. <laughs> yeah, and and it's it's funny because because I, I I read a thing and I believe this was in Charlton Heston's memoir um, where he talked about how the studio didn't like him saying "God damn you all to hell." Oh, really? That's interesting to think about now, like that that was ever off the table. Yeah. And especially because it's a G-rated movie, right? Mm-hmm. At the time, and they were like, "Oh, it's it's swearing," and 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 Heston had to be like, "No, no, you know, he's not swearing. He's literally asking God to damn them." Mm-hmm. And the studio's like, "Okay, I guess." <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure, Moses. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so it's so incredibly effective. I can't. Yeah, wasn't he just supposed to say like, "Oh God," and that's it? I, I think, yeah, th- there's different versions. I, I know, you know, the version I saw when I was a kid where um, it, you know, it was edited. It was edited in such a way where he just says, I'm back. I'm home all the time. And then he falls oh. to his knees and we see the Statue of Liberty. And I'll tell you, it was such a seamless edit that I just assumed that's how the movie ended. Hmm, when you and, say that, I mean, I don't know if I'm making this up, but I feel like I might have seen that edit. Like, was that would there make a time- sense. Where that was I'm, that was what was on TV, maybe. I, too? That would make sense, right? Yeah. Oh, that's like a like a you know hidden memory I had. Like sense memory. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna have to look that up. That's really interesting. Wow. Yeah, because I don't know that. So without that, well, I guess it still had a pretty good effect without that line, but it definitely. Yeah, I don't think you it need it. It, yeah. it drives it home, but I definitely don't think you need it. I mean, I yeah. mean the. And and by the way, the 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 matte painting that they used for for the Statue of Liberty, I mean, God, it still looks great. It does, yeah. I didn't even realize it was a painting. Wow, yeah, it looks it looks really real. Yeah, they they for like the there's like the overhead shot where you see like the bits and pieces, like the crown and stuff. That was like mm-hmm. a framework that they erected um, just to set the context. But like the 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 shot at the end where we pull out. And and see the full thing. That was uh, that was uh, Bill Krieber, the production designer. He just like painted on glass, um, and you know they did like a forced perspective thing, from what I understand. Oh wow! Well, you know, also I I really like the way that that's such an interesting bookend to the to the beginning of the movie when 
they land and he, you know, the ast- the female astronaut didn't make it, which he references later. And then yeah. he looks at the date and you do too, but then he's pretty dismissive of that. And so you forget about it completely until the end. And I feel like that's probably even more of a big, like, how did I not figure this out? Like, <laughs> that right. he meant to only go 700 years in the future, right? But it was like 3,000, something like that. It 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 it's uh two two thousand years. Well, oh, okay. the, the the film is is kind of vague, right? Because because yeah. what what it's, it's what what's happening is that they're like moving so fast mm-hmm. that a minute in the spaceship is like however much time outside the spaceship, and the faster they go, the more time goes by out outside of the ship. Mm-hmm. So it at the time of his recording. He, they, you know, it's been 18, it's been a few, we're now in our like X number of weeks or something. I'm, I'm trying to remember. I actually yeah, have enough of the movie movies. memorized. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's like, it's, it's, it's X number of weeks, like after we left Cape Kennedy, um, you know, but it's been however long. And so it's somewhat unclear, right? Because, because I think they they were always supposed to be gone for that long. It was it was always meant to be a trip that they don't come back from, mm-hmm. because the you know the astronaut who dies, uh, Stewart, her like only purpose in in the very progressive nineteen seventies was to be the new the Eve. new the new Eve, which you know <laughs> the, the math doesn't really work there. <laughs> right, right. It seems like there should have been three women and one man. Right. Or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so they didn't they didn't plan that out. But it's interesting because the later films made it like a like a screw up. Like, oh, they went through a time warp and that wasn't supposed to happen. But I think the first movie, it's it's like a a colony ship basically. Okay, okay. So they were kind Which, of hoping that the Earth would maybe like heal itself by the time they came back, or or just I, I go think, somewhere else. Well, I I think his whole thing was like I'm I'm done with Earth. Oh yeah, that's right. F all you people, I'm leaving, right? Mm-hmm. And I think for I don't know if maybe there's like some expanded universe stuff that's explained why he. No, in fact there is. I don't. I I haven't. I don't know exactly what it is, but there's some reason that the ship like turned around and ended up very poor engineering. Clearly, if they, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're like we're supposed to be in in that star system, like you know, millions of miles away, and oh, actually we're back home. That's, <laughs> that's, that's very bad planning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So much for the human race. <laughs> all, all, almost all of them are uh, eliminated immediately, so I don't think they were successful. But This is true. <laughs> um, well, yeah. Uh, so I guess, you know, the next thing I kind of want to talk about real quick before we get to our last two questions is I feel like we have to talk a little bit. I sort of hinted at it a few times. Uh, do you have any thoughts on, like, on, like the reboots? Um, well, so, so, I mean, there's the Tim Burton one, uh, from 2001 and, and I, uh, I'm not a fan of that movie. Yeah. I saw that in theaters and the second I got out, I was like, <laughs> Ugh, I was really looking forward to that, but <laughs> it I, you know, it, it's funny cause that, that movie came out in 2001 mm-hmm. and I remember in 99 when the Phantom Menace came out and seeing all the people trying to convince themselves that it wasn't that that it wasn't yep, bad when that. it was so so i remember being like i don't know what y'all talking about that movie's not very good I, i'm like i got it and then two years later i went through that with planet of the apes where yeah. i'm like it's it's all right it's it's still good you know 
uh, it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like for a while, um, somebody said this on, on one of the other episodes. I'm trying to remember who said it, but it was like there was a string of time where like in that era where they kept remaking stuff and it was just so bad. It was like, okay, maybe this is impossible. It's it's so interesting how now we've been able to remake some of these franchises so successfully given what has happened before. Like, It's true. Well, you know, like I, I think, you know, honestly, I think what it comes down to is you want to have people making this stuff that have a genuine appreciation for what made the original work. Mm-hmm. It's not better special effects and a bigger budget it's do you understand the concept of the main story (laughs) you know that's that's absolutely right and and you know i i think tim burton it's funny right because because i think planet of the apes ended up being the least apes planet of the apes movie and the least burton tim burton movie Mm -hmm. so it's kind of it's neither it's not you know it's if if you didn't tell me Tim Burton directed it, there's very little in terms of his very specific style that you can point to in there. There's a few things, and you got like the the swirly things. You know, there's a few things. Helena Bottom Carter. Helena Bottom <laughs> Carter. Dead giveaway. Although I think that was the first movie they made together, right? Was it? Oh my god! I think it started there. I think it Whoa, started there. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it, it did start there because Lisa Marie was his uh, girlfriend at the time, and she's oh. in that movie. Oh, she's she's the she does that that erotic dance oh my gosh i probably blocked that out <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're not missing anything and actually i mean that i think i think that was the mistake tim burton his 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 he talked about the original planet of the apes and he was like you know one thing i never liked about the originals is that the apes don't act enough like apes and I remember reading that quote, and that was when my like Spidey sense started going off, and, and I was I was like I was like seventeen, eighteen, eighteen, nineteen, because I was like, wait, no, that, that's the whole point. Is what makes it unnerving is that they're apes who are not acting like apes; they're acting like people. That's what's creepy about it. So mm-hmm. to me, it's less effective when you've got Tim Roth shrieking and you know jumping off chandeliers and stuff. Uh, you're not getting it, you know? Yeah. And plus the ending, ugh, we talked about it yeah. earlier, but that, that ending is literally, that was the nail in the coffin for me when I was in the yeah. theater. When I saw the, the ape Abraham Lincoln, I was like, I can't, I can't with this. <laughs> it was it's too true. bad, it was terrible. It's funny because I, just a few days ago, I watched the ending and, and I was with my wife and, and she, God bless my wife, by the way, because she's put up with my apes fandom for coming up on 15 years you know i when we were engaged she's like what's your favorite movie and i was like planet of the apes like almost afraid <laughs> about she, and she after we got married she's like i want to see it and she Aww, liked it that's so, so I'm nice. like, yeah god, god bless her for that but but i as i was watching it i was i was thinking like what what i might have done is is instead of um having the whole time twist ending why not just have mark Wahlberg land on a planet of apes that looks like the one he lands on at the end of the movie which is like the you know like a modern earth-like planet but with apes i'm like that'll make it different from the original Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know you and you can kind of do your own thing because because i i just feel like they lost so much you know they lost the social commentary Mm -hmm. it's mark Wahlberg, certainly at the time did not have the gravitas that Charlton Heston does. I think I think he's grown into a much better actor. Oh, for sure. But he's still better really supporting, I think. Yeah, I would agree than with that. As a lead actor, so 
Yeah, he's he's an odd choice for the. For it's the funny role. because because they had offered that role to Matt Damon, and Matt Damon did the first Bourne movie instead. Good call. <laughs> yeah, right. But it was funny is at the time people were like, "Why would he turn down Planet of the Apes? It's a sure thing." And it's yeah. like, well. Not so much. I mean, Matt Damon can cash out in Jason Bourne movies for the rest of his life, you know? For sure. And I mean, with Tim Burton, you know, helming the bringing Batman back, essentially, I mean, you can see why they thought he'd have the ability to do the same thing and relaunch this franchise. But yeah, it just it's doesn't true. always work out that way. Well, what do you think of the uh, the newer ones? You know, I, I, I really like them. I, I, I love that. You know, Rise of the Planet of the Apes was a movie that it it kind of came out of nowhere, and that's what I love about it is that you yeah, know everyone, did. yeah, because no, nobody there was no hype around it, right? Mm-hmm. It and they dropped like, it in August. Yeah, it was like when it came out, I thought, oh, okay, it's a remake. I I don't think I read a lot about it. Like you're saying, it kind of came out of nowhere, and so I walked in with, you know, my expectation was basically I have no idea what this is going to be. I mean, I knew what the plot was and I'd seen the trailer, but I did not understand how they were going to be able to launch a trilogy. I, I'm not sure I even knew they were doing that, but I certainly yeah. didn't know, you know, how do you do this now and connect it back to the other movies? You know, to me, the most interesting part of the original movie is that, you know, as a human in an ape's world, realizing it's his world, how do you do that? And I was just so incredibly impressed with that first movie. Yeah, it's it's uh, you know what I wrote in my review uh, back in 2011 is it's an end of the world movie that makes you forget it's an end of the world movie mm-hmm. because what we're seeing if you know once you put the words Planet of the Apes in a title you know where things have to end up right and and it's like we might be you know San Francisco in in 2011 or whatever but if it's Planet of the Apes that means that at some point you know. There's there, there's going to be gorillas chasing Chuck Heston around, you know, mm-hmm. and and what I love is it makes you forget that, and it makes you so invested in in Caesar's journey that in a way you become sort of complicit in the demise of man. Yeah, exactly, and I I also think that uh, you know, in the same way that Doctor Zayas is sort of an ambiguous bad guy. Throughout these trilogies, it's hard to stay focused on who's right and wrong. They do that. Yeah. That that balance is just so, you know, done so well that that, like you said, it, you know, it's it's such a big undertaking to try to make basically prequels. Um, and a lot of people have said that about the Star Wars prequels. They're like, well, you know where we end up, so it's kind of impossible to surprise mm. you. You know, you know, Anakin's going to become Vader. But this franchise proves you actually can do that. Yeah, you know, it's true. If, if it's good storytelling and if it's effective, then it doesn't matter what the end result is. Even knowing it doesn't really take anything away from it. And the really human, uh, you know, struggle with uh, James Franco's character and John Lithgow as his dad. I mean, that's just like so heartbreaking and oh, so relatable. That that scene when. Um... He, Franco's about to give him like the next, you know, step up the medication, and and Lithgow's just kind of like, like no, like he, he, in his he doesn't even say it right. He just kind of like, in his gestures, he's like, like let me go, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, it it's this human drama, you know, mm-hmm. and and I I was telling somebody, uh, 
either yesterday or the day before about how the technology is such that these movies, these new ones, could not have existed ten years ago Gosh, uh, or so fifteen true. years ago. You know, I mean, I mean, uh, what Andy Serkis has done through these three movies is unprecedented. And and uh, you know, a few weeks ago, the the San Francisco Film Critics Circle, and and I'm proud to say I was one of them. We we gave him our Best Actor award uh, for War for the Planet of the Apes, and and I That's really awesome. hope, and it's so. Uh, deserving, you know, because I, it's this mingling of performance and performance capture and digital effects. And then all three of these artistry, different kinds of artistry come together and you have this creation unlike any we've ever seen, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, it, you know, out of the three, it's kind of hard to pick a favorite because those three movies are so different in a way that yeah. I feel like a lot of trilogies are not. I mean, they really each part sort of embodies that word, but it also tells a different story and they almost all kind of stand alone, which I think is also really unique. Um, but I, I feel like probably out of the three, I liked Dawn the best. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. And, you know, I, I understand a lot of people like Warren. I completely understand why. But for me, Dawn was just, wow. I mean, you know, it really sold... Um, where everything was going and how it was going to tie into the last one. Although I love the touch at, uh, I think it was in war when they lose, start to lose their voices oh, and yeah. start to lose their intelligence. You know, it's like, man, they really kind of, I, I, I think I kind of forgot <laughs> that that's what was going to have to happen or how that virus was going to play in. And yeah. it's just such an incredible tie in. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I look at these three films as they're almost like, the Christopher Nolan Planet of the Apes mm -hmm. in the, in that, you know, the same, like what he did with his Batman movies was really bring it down to this grounded, like just one step removed from reality version of Batman, where you believe that just maybe this Joker could exist. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I feel like what, uh, what, uh, uh, Rupert Wyatt and then Matt Reeves, even more so with the latter two, they really, they, they made it this like, it's like reverse engineering. You're like, okay, how do we get to Planet of the Apes 68 in a, in a way that would feel believable? And it's not, you know, because because those earlier films they started going getting a little crazy with with like traveling back in time and things like that. And that's you know that's fine within that context. But these movies aren't doing that. They're they're approaching it sort of like they're 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 taking the back way mm -hmm. into the original Planet of the Apes. And I just think that's so. I mean, that's what you do, right? Like, why tell the same story? Right. You know, I, I've heard people in relation to these new films, like, oh, now you got to, like, redo the 68 movie. And I'm always like, why? It It's there. It's perfect. And you've got, instead of that, you've got 2,000 years of story available between now and and Taylor landing on Earth. Why don't we tell some of those stories? Mm -hmm. Totally agree. You know? And it's interesting because... Um, it's so relevant and the parallels are so clear, especially in war that I had somebody that, uh, that I was talking to that was really upset by war. They felt that it was too heavy handed, that mm. it was exemplifying, uh, sort of like paralleling the white nationalism stuff we're experiencing now. And sure. I, I said, that's funny that you say that because while it does that, it also parallels any other time 
a similar conflict like that has happened. It's very true. But you're just relating it to whatever's happening now. And so you feel like the director's speaking directly to you, telling, you know, berating you or preaching to you. But it's just the story of mankind. To me, those three stories, that's what they are. That's what Planet of the Apes is at its core. It's just the story of mankind. And to try to, you know, pin it down to one time, you could you could relate any war to that war movie because that's what it is, you know. And so, I don't know, I just found that really interesting. Man, I could talk about all three of those movies. I mean, we could go three more hours. <laughs> so yeah, good. I mean, they, they are really uh, fantastic. And, and um, to me, you know, when I think of Dawn, which, I, like you, that's of the three, and it really is a difference of degrees, but that is probably my favorite of the three. I think of one of the moments that sticks out to me is Gary Oldman, who is the antagonist of the movie, mm-hmm. when the power comes back on in their complex and he sees the pictures of his children and his wife and he starts to cry. Yeah. And and when you think about it, that's one of those moments that would have been so easy to just cut out because, oh, pacing, right? Mm-hmm. But you put that in there and suddenly you have this entirely – like this is not good guys and bad guys. This is survivors A, survivors B – and and let's try to figure this out. And, you know, I, I was very lucky because in, in 2014, I actually got to interview uh, Matt Reeves uh, about the film because oh, they, awesome. they had the premiere. Oh, it was amazing. Wow, uh, they had the world premiere here in San Francisco because, you know, that's where the movie's set. Um, and so I asked him about and he's like a huge Apes fan. Like yeah. He's talked about it before. He's he's like, for me. It, it, you can absolutely, and and th- this was 2014. So at the and he's like big, you know, he's buddies with with JJ Abrams for, from from childhood. He's like for JJ, it was Star Wars for me. It was Planet of the Apes, and it's funny how both of them kind of became like the godfathers of their respective franchises. You know? Yeah, that's an incredible success story right there. <laughs> it really is. But he he talks about Dawn, and he's like, this is what we're depicting in this film. It's the moment. It's the one moment where it could have been the planet of the apes and the men. Mm-hmm. But this little, this thing happened where the extremists on both sides couldn't look past what was actually happening, and so it was lost. And because we know where this series has to end up, it ends up being a depiction of the most tragic moment in human history. Right. It kind of yeah. like made me think of like World War One. you know? Yeah. And just, yeah, and just, and just how real that is. Like, if we didn't have the context of history, you would be like, oh, come on, how does this one thing change the tide? Well, it does, you know. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, uh, here's hoping that uh, five, ten years from now, we're not like, man, if you hadn't sent that tweet. <laughs> I think that every day. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing, but I'm also crying on the inside. Crying, right. <laughs> Well, uh, on, on that note, uh, let's, let's bring uh, my last two questions up. These are my favorite questions. Uh, and, and you've kind of answered them this entire time we've talked about it. But uh, why do you keep returning to this movie? What, what about it keeps you coming back? You know, last week I recorded a commentary track uh, for the movie E.T. with my partner Brian Hall. Oh, awesome. Yeah, and, and so E.T. is Brian's all-time favorite movie. And and I told him I was like you know you can tell a lot about somebody by their favorite movies and you I said can. I it you really can all eh? their movie tastes it really does it it totally does and and so what I told him I was like you loving E T tells me everything about you because that's mm-hmm. his personality is he's very 
uh, caring and thoughtful and hopeful. And I, and I told him on his commentary, I'm like, my favorite movie being Planet of the Apes, I think says everything about me, which is that I'm very cynical and jaded. And <laughs> I tend Charles to expect, <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> I was like, I tend to, I hope for the best, but I tend to expect the worst, you know? Yeah. And, and, um, I, I think that it made me cynical, maybe at a younger age than I should have been cynical. Um, but I think when, when, when viewed in totality, not just uh, the first film, but but that in uh, that five movie cycle, what it's what it to me what it's about is our capacity to do ourselves harm, mm-hmm. but our capacity for kindness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I would agree with that. you know, and and uh, you know, again, we we see uh, we see in the first film uh, the most human characters are Cornelius and Zira. Yes, yeah. and you know they're modeling that behavior for us, and and you know in in the in the third film, you know it's it, it's it's uh, the the kindness of the the circus owner played by Ricardo Montalban that allows Cornelius and Zira's child to survive, and you know and and so that's something that I always that I always come back to, and I, I'm I've been very lucky because I've gotten to share these movies with with my kids. And, uh, you know, before War for the Planet of the Apes came out, we went through all of them. Well, except for the Tim Burton one. That doesn't exist. That's not in my headcanon. But we yeah, watched... Yeah, me neither. Somebody asked me the other day, oh, do you mean this mo- that movie? And I was like, what? I kind of <laughs> forgot that movie happened. Or tried to. <laughs> That's very funny. But we, we, we watched all five. Um, and then um, we watched the TV series. You know, we watched uh, the, 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 the Rise and Dawn. And... It was fascinating for me to experience it through their eyes because they plug in in different ways. But hopefully the message they get out of it is not one of cynicism, but it's one of we can prevent a bad thing from happening if we fix the way we are now. Mm-hmm. We can we can change tomorrow, you know, it, and, and borrowing from another franchise. I mean, the future is not set. And I think that's really the message. Uh, of not just the first Planet of the Apes, but the entire the entire franchise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. Well, since you've pitched this to your kids, how do you pitch this to somebody to somebody new to somebody's a little younger generation? Because I really feel that they are missing out on this movie. I don't know if you feel that, but I when I talk to people that are just like a little bit younger that are not in their thirties, I they're often like, "Oh yeah, those movies my parents liked." I mean, more, yeah, you know, and they're just kind of like. It's almost like Star Wars didn't erase the trilogy, didn't erase that uh, that, that that franchise, but it definitely overshadowed it. Um, yeah. And so there's a bunch of people that I think to them when they see these movies, they think, oh yeah, it's about a guy that you know lands in this ape ape town, and they don't really go further with that. I I think sometimes they don't understand like the impact of the ending or what it's really about. So how yeah. how do you pitch that to somebody that uh, that's maybe thinking about it, teetering? That's a really good question. You know, I I would I I think the most important thing is to really contextualize it. So, uh, you want to say, look, this is one of the most important movies of the '60s, mm-hmm. and it's it's saying a lot about uh, the specific socio political movements of that era. But it also has a lot in it that's timeless, mm-hmm. and and I would leave it at that. I I think yeah. Um, you know, I'm 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 of the school of thought that says less is more in terms of hyping up a movie. I'm always like, sure, check it out. You know, I I always tell like I, my brother or my wife if I recommend something, I'm like, check it out. I I think you'd like it. 
And I feel like that's enough if it's coming from me because I'm not going to tell random people who I don't know their tastes what to watch, you know? Yeah, that's good advice, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but I'll tell you, I mean, it, for me, uh, I've, I've been very lucky because, uh, you know, in, in when I was a sophomore in high school, I published a Planet of the Apes fanzine. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. It, well, it's awesome, you know, in hindsight. At the time, that's not exactly the, the way to make friends and influence people, you know? Yeah. No, don't worry. Uh, you know, as in in high school, I think all my weekends were spent um, on the couch with my best friend watching Star Trek. Same thing. Uh, I really nice. think popular at school. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, you know, the the amazing thing, I still have those those issues and, uh, you know, th- the issues of the the magazine not my mm. personal issue <laughs> i should clarify <laughs> you've worked through your issues <laughs> yeah, that's right and 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 so i took uh, the the whatever back issues i had remaining and i showed them to matt reeves oh and, that's awesome and he got a kick out of it and i'm sitting there i'm like you know if high school sophomore zaki could have seen this like hey you know you think this is kind of weird but you know uh, uh 20 years from now this is the director of planet of the apes is going to be flipping through your thing you know and and not just that, I've contributed to, to two books about the, the franchise. I've uh, made lasting friendships with with uh, uh, some of the, the production personnel involved. I mean, it's it, the franchise has had uh, such an impact on me above and beyond just being something that I love. But, you know, I think that that's, you know, what we go back to a lot in this podcast about how, you know, there's this... I feel like we're getting away from this, but, you know, for a long time, people would say, for instance, with Star Trek, there's that, you know, SNL skit. It's just a show, you know, <laughs> it's just a stupid show. Um, get a life. Get a life, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it's funny because I think that's something I'm kind of against because I, I really think that uh, movies affect us deeply for different reasons. And, again, there's real reasons why that happens. I mean, when you talk about the way this movie franchise impacted your life and all the things that you got to do because of it, um, that's that's really incredible. It means that there's something really significant there. And I'm just so happy that, you know, that you shared that with me. And uh, it, that is so cool. I, If you have any pictures of stuff like that, if you could send it to me, I'd really like to share those if you have them. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, that, I'll, that I'll go through so the old cool. archives. I mean, that is that is just like such a you know, such like a, a, a nerd dream come true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have countless Star Trek novels and I went to a bunch of conventions, but I don't have a story like that. So that's pretty amazing. <laughs> I'm not like one of those people that was like, oh yeah, I watched Star Trek. And then I became, you know, I, I enlisted in the Air Force. Like, you know, I, I didn't do anything like that. I, I really respect everyone that did, but <laughs> it didn't yeah. take me down there. Um, I, I think, you know, pretty much what you already said, I, uh, if I were to pitch this to someone else, um, I would say what I say about every great sci-fi that I love. To me, the best sci-fi is just telling our story, but giving it to you in a different setting so that you can kind of look at it with fresh eyes and, and really re-examine something that you kind of already know, I guess, you know? Yeah. I, I, and I, I feel like sci-fi is as best when it, when it does that, when it's not so distracted by you know, I don't know, space fights and explosions. And it really gets back to just what does it mean to be human? And where, who are we? Where are we going? You know, why are we here, etc. And I think that Planet of the Apes does that in such an amazing way. I'm not sure I can really compare it to another movie that does it quite the same way, where it literally tells the entire story of mankind so completely. Mm. You know? Very true. 
And so, yeah, that's what, that's, that's what I would say about it. I've seen it a bunch of times and I, I don't get tired of it. Much like I said earlier with watching the twilight zone, I just can't get tired of, of how <laughs> well it's told, you know? Yeah. Very true. Well, man, I, again, I have to thank you so much, uh, for, for coming on the show and for making time. Uh, oh, what a blast on this. Yeah. Yeah. It was so fun. I mean, this is just, you know, I have kind of like a dream list of movies and this is definitely on that list. So I was so oh, happy great. you picked it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you ever have time, definitely come back. Cause I want to talk about, you know, we could talk about the, the, uh, the reboots or any of the other films that you're interested and in. And any, any movie you want to chat about, I'm, I'm happy to do it. I had an absolute blast, and I can't believe how, how quickly the time went by. I know, I know. We went through everything. That was really smooth. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> it's great when that works. Okay, well, thank you so much. And, and did you want to plug any, like, you kind of talked a little bit about your podcast, but where can people find you? You know, how can they get in touch with you? Oh, um, yeah. Well, my website is zackiescorner.com. That's Z-A-K-I-S corner. And uh, that's also my Twitter. That's also my Instagram. So I'm I'm always available. And uh, as I said at the top, I, I co-host uh, the Movie Film Podcast with my partner, Brian Hall, who is one of the writers of the Disney show uh, Puppy Dog Pals. And, awesome. uh, you know, every, every two weeks, which is a great show, by the way, if you haven't seen it, it's good for kids, but it's also a fun show for grownups. I'll have to check it out. Uh, but yeah, we, we talk about new releases and our next episode, uh, will be our, our top 10, uh, movies of the year. And I also host a show called Nostalgia Theater, which is a monthly show where, uh, I talk to the people, uh, responsible for the pop culture artifacts that we like and, uh, um, sort of talk about their experiences making it. So, uh, okay. I've got an episode coming up later this month where I talked to John McNamara, who is the executive producer of a TV remake of the fugitive from 2000, which starred Tim Daly oh, wow. and uh, Michael. Yeah. And it's kind of an unseen, uh, uh, forgotten show. And, uh, I, I was like one of eight people that watched it, <laughs> <laughs> but that's awesome. I mean, I, I love stuff like that and I love hearing stories like that. That, that is really cool. I, I think you, you, you may enjoy it. So I, I hope you and, and uh, folks in your audience will check it out. Yeah. And, and like I said, uh, before we started recording, I really enjoyed your episode where you're sort of recapping on movies of the year and you, ha you and uh, your partner, uh, Brian, had a really, really good kind of in-depth analysis of The Last Jedi that I think whether you like the film or not, you can respect, you know, the viewpoints that you guys had and, and your reasoning behind it. I think it was just like really well put. I feel that the next time somebody tries to tell me why they hate it so much, I can say, well, listen to this and maybe it'll <laughs> help you, you know, work through all of those things and come back around full circle. <laughs> I really, hopefully. Like yeah. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Zachy. Thank you so much. And uh, have a good night. You too. Thanks. All right. Bye. 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 Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I kind of want to go off script here real quick and just, again, thank you guys so much for tuning in, for downloading, for being a guest. Um, I am fully aware that I really feel with this, this project, with this podcast, that a lot of your support comes from just, I think, seeing the potential of what it could turn into, of what it could be. And that kind of faith and that kind of support, it really means a lot to me. And I just don't want you guys to ever forget that. this po There's no podcast without you guys that come on here and listen. And I can't tell you how grateful I am. Um, I This is just something that I've wanted to do for so long. And 
I kind of just jumped into it. I, you know, I started out podcasting thinking that it was something I wanted to do, but I wasn't sure if I could find an audience. I wasn't sure, you know, if I was going to be able to do it. And a lot of my friends encouraged me to just go ahead and jump in. And I just cannot believe the way that it's taken off. It's been really amazing. Uh, Sort of just to recap 2017, and I'll go more into depth with, in, with this in our anniversary episode, which incidentally, the anniversary episode is coming up. It'll be in March, which is crazy to think this podcast has been around for a year already for someone like me that is so new and really hadn't done this before, um, hadn't even been a guest until I started it. And so, so yeah, to just recap on the things that have happened this year, uh, you know, I've had so many guests that... Uh, studied film and I think that is so great because if you guys know me from listening I'm just a fan I did not study film I just love movies intensely and I just wanted a safe space to talk about them in a positive way so to get that input from some of you out there that did study it and can just kind of you know elaborate on everything that I love about these films that is such a joy Um, another thing that happened this year uh I got to the chance to interview a film composer. I mean, that was not even on my list of goals that I wanted to accomplish, but it happened. And that is so incredible. Uh, go back and listen to that episode. Uh, we talked about The General. So go find that episode and listen to it. It's so awesome. Just great to have that conversation and to be able to get that insight on someone in the industry that, you know, has that kind of experience and just to learn more about composing in general. It's it's really awesome. Um, another opportunity I got this year, I mean, it, it was almost like the second I started to put these episodes out, I had a few people reach out to me to be a guest. And I can't tell you guys how much that means to me too. Um, there's so many podcasts that I listen to and have always sort of dreamed of being a guest on one of them. And so uh, I was on the GMC podcast. I've made such good friends with uh, Mike and Danny through that. Those guys are amazing. I go check out their podcast. It's really awesome. Um, I was also on Tim Rooney's podcast, the Anything Goes podcast. If you guys want to check that one out, uh, Tim has been awesome. He was on our last episode that I just did about uh, prisoners. So go listen to that. And I've guessed it on his episode. Got to talk Man of Steel with him. Really, really fun. Um, And also just like a big kind of bucket list kind of thing. I got to be on the uh, Holy Batcast, which that was really insane for me. Just so you guys know, I've always been a Batman fan, but I, I would say in the last... I guess it's been three or four years, my fandom has really exploded. It's kind of taken over my life. And you can see that reflected in my costume choices and in my decor in some cases. Anyway, uh, to be sort of welcomed into that community of those fans and to be on that show. Wow, that was just so fun. I am obsessed with their podcast. Go check it out. Andy and Jamie and occasionally Brent are really awesome and you really need to check out their their podcast Holy Betcast so uh so yeah those are just a few of the things that happened this year oh I think my major shout out that I want to give um is to Scott from DC Suicide Squadcast uh that podcast really 
sort of, you know, there were a few things along the way that kind of got me off the ground, but that one and their positivity towards the DC films that I really love when there's so much negativity out there uh, really did like embolden me to want to go forward and do it. And both Tim and Scott have been so supportive, but I have to give an extra shout out to Scott because I really feel that he his good word that he put in for me on the internet has really led to a lot of incredible opportunities and getting to talk to so many of you that I don't think that would have happened otherwise. And, and yeah, so thank you, Scott. Thank you so much. You have no idea how much that meant to me and I really do appreciate it. All right, guys, mushy stuff out of the way. Um, I do want to say that if you have any feedback about this episode or any others, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter under AYA Lisa Cosplay, on Instagram at AYA and as a Nancy AMI Lisa, or in my closed Facebook group, I Love That Movie. Can't believe I left this off the list, but that Facebook group, you guys. It's a closed group, so just send me your request and I'll add you. It's it's just a safe space for people to talk about movies that they love and for it to be judgment-free. So my only rule is don't be mean to each other. And so far, it's been so great. There's no, you know, heated arguments about films. It's just pure film enjoyment. And I can't tell you how many people have said it's like therapy where they get to talk about all these films that people hate on, but like no one's hating on them. In fact, a few people will chime in and say, I love it too. It's, it's really... It's been a really good thing, and I really do appreciate I'm so thankful for it. Um, and if you like what you heard today, please subscribe and rate this show. Um, and if you leave a positive re- review sorry, on iTunes, you'll be entered to win a $20 gift card to a movie theater chain of your choice. Right now, we're at 16 reviews, and I will. we've already had one winner at 15, so the next winner will be at 30. Uh, so once we get to 30 positive reviews, I will draw a name and you could win. So please, guys, it's free money. Uh, check it out. It's the way I thank you guys for supporting the show. Uh, thanks so much again. I said thank you like 100 times, but I meant it. <laughs> and I look forward to hearing from you.